narratives. Basically, four narratives in the Gospel of Luke that are told before Jesus comes. And you can see around me, and even in the front of the pulpit here, is these songs that we are walking through. Basically, all the Sundays leading up to Christmas. And in case you guys are counting, there's also a fifth song on there, because there's going to be a bonus song on the 26th. But it's not going to come before Jesus is born. It's actually going to come from the book of Revelation, which I'm looking forward to preaching what's called Moses' song on the 26th. Now, last week, Ken started off this Advent series for us by walking us through Mary's song, or Mary's Magnificent, where she basically, in this beautiful melody, right, she told us about how she understood that the baby in her womb at this point was going to be her Savior was going to be the one in whom her soul needed, the one in whom she longed to see, the one who came to do great things, right? the one who came to serve God's people, the one who would come in grace and mercy. We see Mary just delight in the baby that she was carrying. And it was a beautiful song. And much like Mary's song, today's song, Zechariah's song, it's going to be spoken or sung by Zechariah in the language as if it had already happened. You'll see kind of a past tense in Zechariah's song. Because here's what I want you guys to notice when you read your Bible, and especially when you read these prophecies that are found throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, more times than not, they are said or spoken as if they had already happened. Now, why is that? Why would God speak through a person, as if it had already happened. Because here's what we need to know about our God. Our God does not speak in ifs, or maybes, or I hope so. When he speaks, he speaks as if it's already accomplished, because in him it will be. It will be. And we're going to see that in Zechariah's song. But today's song, Zechariah, in case you don't know, he's probably not a very familiar character in, in your biblical theology, right? Many of you do not have little Zacharias standing around in the nativity scene. Right? He wasn't there. He's not part of your Advent worship. He usually doesn't get a whole lot of airtime in churches. We tend to narrow in and focus in on just that nativity scene, right? Just on the day or the night in which Jesus was born. And that's okay. That's a good thing to do. There's plenty for us to look at there. But sometimes we get to Luke 2 a lot faster than we should not realizing that Luke 1 has a whole lot of information about the coming of Christ, too. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is Zechariah's song. And I want to tell you this. Zechariah's song is, is probably one of the, the most prolific prophecies that I have had a chance to really study and preach on. Zechariah is actually going to pull out some of these promises and these hopes that are found in the gospel and put them on display for us in a way that almost no other prophet I see does with such clarity and such just delight in his own soul. So if you guys have Bibles, and I really hope you do, make sure you have those open to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 67. Verse 67, which is on page 856, if you're using one of those black pew Bibles that are around the room. And I try to mention this from time to time, but just in case you, you haven't heard me say this, uh, those Black Pew Bibles, if you need an ESV Bible, or a, a, basically that's the English Standard Version that we use around here, if you need a Bible 
you don't have one or you don't have the English Standard Version that we use here, or maybe you just know of somebody who could benefit from having a Bible, um, go ahead and take that home with you. That's our gift to you as a church. We're happy to give that to you. But one of the things that I like to do before we actually read the text is I like to take a moment to pray. Because we need God and we need his spirit to just to be here and reveal his word to us. Although I've, we've, I've studied this week, right? I have been praying, been asking God for, for clarity in this. I know that even as of this morning and the rest of my life and the rest of your guys' life, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit to allow us to fully understand what God has written. So what I want to do is I just want to simply pray one more time. I want to pray for you for that manner. And I would ask that as I'm praying for you, that you would pray for me. So let's go ahead and just pray, and then we'll read the word together. Well, Father, what a gift. And really, Lord, this is a gift. It's undeserved. It's such, there's so much grace when it comes to your word. God, I pray that as we look at this text, God, I pray for every man and woman and child in this room, that you would just give them the grace and the mercy of allowing your spirit to reveal to illuminate this word for them this morning, whether these are words that they have read dozens of times or they're, they're hearing them for the first time. God, we know and desire to hear your voice. And God, we know that you've revealed your voice through your words. So we just allow us, oh, please allow us just to understand and to embrace it. Allow it to convict us. Allow it to be, to be more than just words on a page, but the inerrant, infallible word that it is. God, I also pray for our kiddos. I pray for our teachers who are laboring to just teach and to instruct our little ones the same truths, the same promises that we're looking at in here. What a gift it is to be able to, to teach all people who you are and what you've done. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67, I'm going to read through verse 79. It says, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Verse 75, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. We're thankful for God's word. Now, with any uh, passage of the Bible, right, we have to understand some context, right? The, the who, what, when, why, where of what are we reading exactly? Because the Bible is not just this random collection of fortune cookie statements or wise sayings. 
as sometimes it's often portrayed, the Bible actually is telling a story, a singular story, using real people in real time to do it. And so as we're looking back, you know, over 2,000 years ago at this point, we're looking back at Zechariah's song. We've got to ask, who's Zechariah? Right? Why in the world would his words be written down as the inspired, holy, inerrant word of God? And just as important, why should that even make a difference for us today? Right? Why in the year 2021 would Zechariah's song actually play a, a, a marginal uh, anything on our life? Well, I hope to show you that. Because what I hope to show you throughout this text is what Zechariah is telling his people, what he's telling, and why it's been penned as the word of God is because it's desperately something we need today. It's something that we need to know, embrace today, and we need to embrace this Christmas season. So who is Zechariah? Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we actually read that Zechariah is a priest. He's a priest. He's married to Elizabeth, who is the relative of Mary, Jesus' mom. And we're told that Zechariah was given this unique privilege, basically a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the priest that was able to go into the temple and light the incenses in the temple. And this was a really big deal. Usually you got, maybe you got one of these once a lifetime. Most priests never got this opportunity. But Zechariah was given this opportunity to go into the temple and light incenses, and it was a really big deal. It was actually such a big deal, we actually read that people came and were praying outside the temple for Zechariah to perform this duty. It was just an important aspect to their worship. And in Luke chapter 1, I'm not going to read through, I'm just going to paraphrase and walk through it with you uh, real quick, is, is what happens when Zechariah is actually in the temple doing these, these lighting of the incenses, he's visited by an angel. By an angel. It's the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel began talking to him and telling him, hey, Zechariah, guess what? Your prayers have been answered. Your prayers have been answered. God is going to give you and your wife, Elizabeth, a son. And this son is going to be named John. Now, we don't know at this point really how long um, Zechariah and Elizabeth hadn't had any, been trying to have kids, but haven't been able to have any kids. And this is really important in that, in that um, time and place in history that you would be able to have a son to carry on your legacy. And Zechariah didn't have a son. Elizabeth did not have a son. They did not have a son. And so at, at some point, probably early in their marriage, right, they had been praying for a son, but it had not been coming. And it probably hadn't been coming for a long time because when you read what Zechariah says, he says, listen, I don't know if I can really believe you, Gabriel, because I'm pretty old. I'm pretty old. And to use his words, he says, my wife is advanced in years. And so what happens? Well, because Zechariah did not trust the word of the Lord given through Gabriel, it says that Zechariah was struck mute, unable to speak. Elizabeth probably says, serves you right for calling me advanced in years. <laughs> I don't know if she knew it or not. But Elizabeth does become pregnant right after this. She becomes pregnant, and Zechariah remains unable to speak for those nine months as they wait and anticipate this coming child. 
And then the child is born. And there's this discussion in the household. Hey, what are you going to name this child? And Mary, or Elizabeth says, we're going to name him John. And they, they get a hold of Zachariah's attention because he can't speak. He says, is this true? Are you guys going to name him John, not Zachariah Jr.? That's, that would be the typical naming of this child. And he goes, no. And he writes on a stone tablet, his name is John. His name is John. And it's at this point that Zachariah is able to speak again. His tongue is loosened. He is able to speak. And so what we are reading here in Zechariah's song is the outpouring, the overflowing of what God had done in Zechariah for nine months as he was suffering and waiting and trusting the Lord. And here's where I just want to just make a quick pastoral note, church. There is no amount of suffering that God does not use for his purposes, for his glory, and your dependency on him, no matter how long it takes. It will always be used for his glory and your good. You can trust him in that. You can trust him in that. Now, I don't know about you then, but if, if you were not able to speak for nine months, you might have a lot to say. Right? Some things have been on your nerves for a while that you've not been able to tell anybody. And there's actually indication in the text that Zechariah wasn't able to even hear because they had to make signs to him to get his attention. So he probably was in total silence for nine months, not able to hear, not able to speak. And when you have that much time in silence, church, you're left alone with your thoughts a lot. You're left alone with your God a lot. And there's probably indication that Zechariah, during this nine-month period, he, he had access to Old Testament literature. And he was reading and thinking about the promises of God. And so now when his tongue is loosened, now when he's able to finally speak again, this is what he has to say. This is what he has to say. And the first word he says is, blessed. Blessed. That's why sometimes this psalm or this song is referred to as the Benedictus, which is the Latin term for blessed. Zacharias Benedictus. And so what Zachariah is going to do is he's going to basically just overflow anyone who's in listening distance about what God has been doing in his life. What he's been showing him, what he's been revealing to him, what he's been promising him. Because the promises to him are not just to him but for anybody who's going to be trusting and waiting and depending on the Lord to move. And as I mentioned earlier, Zechariah pulls out and puts on display some of the greatest gospel promises that we have in all the Bible. So let's look at those. Let's look at those. I want to show you that there's, there's so much in here, church, that we, need, we could ponder on this for a while. So look at verse 68, when it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Meaning that God is coming and redeeming his people. Spoken as if it already happened. But this is where we have to back up quite a bit, don't we? Of like, why would this be good news? Why would God visiting his people actually be good news? Well, if you were to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, Right? They rebelled against the God that created them and believed that God was not the best source of wisdom, the best source of insight, the best source of what it looks like to live under his domain and flourish. And they trusted 
the evil one. They trusted Satan, and they said, yeah, we probably don't need God. We could probably do this on our own. And they sinned and they rebelled. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve afterwards? When he gave the promise to them, he promised them that he was going to send somebody to right the wrong that happened in the garden. That he was going to send somebody to redeem Adam and Eve and all those that would follow after them. It was this great promise of redemption that God was going to send someone. But this text, what we're looking at in Zechariah, is actually giving us some explanation, some further clarification of who is this someone? Was it just somebody that God was going to send and hope that they would accomplish what God had promised back in the garden? It was just some random person that was going to show up one day and go, I am that guy. No. What we actually read here in the text, and you guys have to see this, church, what we're reading is it was not just somebody that was God was going to send, but it was himself that he was going to be sent to dwell and to visit his people and redeem them. That God himself was going to come. Now, this might have surprised those who were listening. Might have surprised, like, what do you mean? That God himself is coming? God himself is going to be visiting us? They might have been surprised by that. In the same ways that we tend to be surprised when Christmas shows up, right? This whole Christmas season, right, when we're, we're getting ready, we're putting lights up, we're getting invited to holiday parties, it tends to take us by surprise, mostly. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but all of a sudden December is here, and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did that get here? It was July 4th a couple weeks ago. I, every single year, I am surprised that December hits in December. But you know what, church? You know who never gets surprised that Christmas is here? God. God was never surprised even at the first Christmas. The first Christmas was planned. And even the scripture said it was planned before the foundation of the world. That God knew that he was going to send somebody. That God himself was going to be born among us. The first Christmas was coming. And as Zachariah is pointing out, God is coming. And he's not just coming, but he's coming to redeem. He's coming to fulfill. And if you look at verse 69, we see further clarification on this. Where he says, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. A horn of salvation. That's the Old Testament reference from Psalm 148, which we read as our call to worship this morning. The horn of salvation, which is this promise that God is going to raise or to send somebody. A horn of salvation was really just a, a literary term to describe an animal that had power. But a, an animal that had power and authority. And what David said in Psalm 148 is that God is going to send somebody as this horn of salvation, this powerful king to come. And what is Zechariah telling us here? That horn of salvation, which David talked about, is coming. Is coming right now. Is coming right now. See, God is not surprised in the way that we get surprised by things, church. And if God had all these details worked out about how he was going to send his son, how he was going to send someone to redeem his people, you can trust him with what's going on in your life right now. You can trust him that he knows about it. You can trust that he actually knows even the details about it. Right? Sometimes when we pray, we, we, we're trying to like fill in God with like what's going on. Like, God, I don't know if you know this, but this person has cancer. I have cancer. 
Or this person is sick, this person is struggling, this person does not know you. He knows that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with maybe using that language, but just remember the God in whom you're talking to. Remember that he is the one who knows all things, who has planned all things. And you can come saying, Lord, you know my heart. You know my life. You know my friend's life. You know my family's life. You actually love them more than I love them, and I can trust them to you. But as a good dad wants to hear from his child, this is, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking forward to. And I want you to move according to your will, knowing that I cannot improve upon what you have already planned for them. But I want to submit myself to it. And then in verse 71 through 74, if we keep reading, Zechariah, he actually points out then one more promise. The promise that God has made to our forefathers, and he, and he highlights one particular person, Abraham. The covenant with Abraham. As one who had received a promise, a binding covenant from God himself. And what Zechariah is about to say is, that promise that he made to Abraham, that is coming to fruition. That is coming to fruition. So let me show you this from Genesis 17. This is one of the spots where we see this covenant that was given to Abraham. This is God speaking to Abraham, and he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an ever lasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. What Zechariah is telling us here, church, in this song is that promise to Abraham, that promise of the, the generation to come, that offspring singular to come was here. It was in Mary's womb. It was Jesus about to be born. Because Jesus, as the rest of the New Testament actually tells us and clarifies to us, that Jesus is actually the seed of Abraham, the eternal seed of Abraham, and that for all of us who have turned and we have trusted in Christ, church, we're actually called the sons and daughters of Abraham because we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And so all of the blessing that was given to Abraham is now given to us by our Savior Jesus. God never forgets his promises. He never forgets them. And he always fulfills them. That should be good enough for us just to get up and walk out of here going, amen. God never forgets his promises. But I want to I keep going because there's some really good things that need to be highlighted in this. Because if we continue in verses 71 through 74, Zechariah also shows us that not only are there promises to to Abraham and the promise of the horn of salvation, but there's also this promise of being freed from captivity, freed from our enemies, or it says delivered out of the hands of our enemies. Now, we have to remember, when most people read this prophecy, when they first understood Zechariah talking about this, how that he was going to be free, God was going to free us from our enemies, most people interpreted that as political enemies, Right? The, the, the real life Roman oppression that the 
the Jewish nation was experiencing at this time. Right? They were overtaken. Right? They were under Roman rule. It was going to get worse in the coming generations, but even at this time, they were under oppression. They didn't like Rome. They really didn't like Rome. So when they heard that Jesus was going to, this, this coming one was going to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, they were really excited. Like, finally, someone's going to take out Rome. And so when Jesus actually showed up on the scene and he began preaching and teaching, most people got really frustrated with Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't taking on Rome. He wasn't taking on the political leaders. He wasn't taking on those enemies. So what enemies, then, was actually being promised of the redemption out of? Right? Who were we actually being held captive by, ultimately? It's the same enemies that we have now, church. It's the same enemies that you have if you are outside of Christ. Right? If you do not know him, or you're not sure where you're at, if you've never turned and trusted in Christ, that you have real enemies. It's the enemies of false worship. The enemy of finding your purpose, finding your mission, finding your identity in anything or anyone outside of the one who created you. It's the enemy of spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness and void. It's the enemy of evil. It's the enemy of the principalities of this world. Which I find very interesting because this time of year, right, this Advent season for all of us, and I know this is true for all of us, a time of the year when we are meant to slow down, right, when we are meant to be able to actually contemplate, maybe we have more time off of work, to actually contemplate the true meaning of the season, right? The true meaning of what are we doing, celebrating on Christmas? Isn't this usually the time where we're the most frustrated and the most rushed? The time where we find ourselves most busy with just things to do or to buy or, to, or people to see? And those things aren't necessarily bad. But every single year, it's this season where our eyes of priorities often get shifted to something or someone else besides Christ. Oftentimes we try to be like the rest of the world at this time, truthfully. Right? We try to act like the rest of the world. Try to celebrate the same way the world celebrates. And I want to tell you that it's going to feel empty on December 26th, like it does for the rest of the world. But here's the beauty is on December 26th, you know who we're still going to be celebrating? Christ in his incarnation. We're going to still be celebrating that Christ is still on his throne. December 26th does not have to be a letdown, like it is for most of the world. December 26th would be, all right, Christ is still on his throne. Let's keep moving, right? Let's keep celebrating. See, we don't have to feel held captive to the vain worship that often just pervades the air that we breathe during this time of year. Because we're actually given a new identity in Christ. We are freed from that oppression. It really is the oppression, church. And you got to see it that way. We have spiritual enemy when it comes to this that wants to distract. In the coming weeks, we're probably going to hear a lot about how 2022 is going to be a whole lot better than 2021. Maybe that'd be politically, right? Economically, health-wise. 
But here's what you need to, if you listen to the message closely, what is the hope in? It's in circumstances. Or it's hope in hope. They actually don't even expect the circumstances to change. But they say, but it's going to be better. We can have more hope next year. And the drum that I have been beating for months on end, church, is that we do not have to find our hope in hope. As our hope can be in Christ. Now, we can look, look forward to it, and I really do. I really do hope that 2022 is better economically and politically and health-wise for our world. I do. But my hope is not in those things. My hope is in the one who's still on his throne and will be on the throne in the next year, in the next year, in the next year, in the next year. I can trust him. I can trust him. Even if he doesn't do it in the way that I like him to do it. Which is important for us to be honest about. That God might do something in this next year that we do not actually want him to do, but we can trust him in it. Church, I hope you're seeing what Zechariah is talking about is not some distant prophecy that has no impact on our lives today. This is something that we need. Right? This is the booster that we need. I know that's a political statement these days, but Zechariah is saying you need a booster of hope. You need a booster of what the promised one is. You need a booster of what Christmas is all about. You need a booster of the Christ of Christmas because we tend to fail to recognize him as he is. Now, the second point, I I think I'm behind on my schedule. The second point that I want to show you is that we are actually, we're saved to serve. That this God who is coming, this redemption that's anticipated and is here, is actually coming to do something that's going to practically have implications on our lives right now, as it did for Zechariah. And I want to show you this. Look at verse 74. Look at verse 74. After he announces that we'll be delivered from the hand of our enemies, it says what? It says that, so that we might serve him without what? Fear. Without fear. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important for us to look at? Why is that important for me to highlight up here? Because as you follow Christ, church, right, as you step into a world that does not know him, doesn't really want to know him, is an enemy with him, it's going to take great courage for you. It's going to take great courage for you to continue to fight sin. It's going to take great courage to have Jesus remain on the throne instead of something else in your life. It takes courage to follow Christ. It absolutely does. To remove idolatry, right? to be honest with other people about where you're at and where you need to grow, that takes courage. And here in this text, and what Zechariah is saying is that you have been saved and created to serve him, but serve him without fear. So all those things that stop you from following Christ and serving him, all those fears of you thinking that you're not going to be good enough, that you actually cannot be used, that I'll let the evangelism or I'll let the, the talking about the gospel, I'll leave it to other people, or I'll let other people serve in my place, What Zachariah is saying is when you have been saved, when you understand who Christ is, it should create something in you that actually wants to serve the one who went before you. That's what he's saying. And to do so without fear. Or maybe to do it with a fear that trumps the fear of your own self, the fear of the Lord. 
when you have this reverence and this awe of who God is, you can say, yeah, I can serve him. I can serve him in my workplace. I can serve him in the church. I can serve him in my family. I can make him be a priority because of what God has done, because of who he is. We often are so often in bondage to our own fears, and I'm saying this about myself too, or my own fears about what you think, own fears about what the community will think, that oftentimes it debilitates me from doing what I think God has actually called me to do in serving him. And what this text has given us all is courage in our spines to say, I can serve him and I can serve him without fear. That's good news for us this Christmas season. And I pray that we embrace this just with a holy, a holy clinging to who God is. Now, in verse 76, I need to point this out. Since we're all created to serve, this is when Zechariah makes a kind of a, a change in his language in a little bit to start talking directly to somebody else. And I imagine at this point that he is actually holding his baby John in his arms. And he looks down at him. And he speaks truth into his heart. And he says, son, this is how you are going to serve the Lord. This is how you are going to do it. And he tells him that he has a job to do, a job to prepare the way of the Lord. If you remember from last week when, when Ken was walking through, when Mary and Elizabeth were getting together and they were pregnant, and John was leaping in his womb because he actually recognized from the womb who Jesus was. This is John now hearing from his dad the purpose behind that of why his heart was leaping for joy when he was around Jesus is because he had a job to do, a job to prepare the way of the Lord, a job to be able to tell people that their greatest danger was not going to be the politics, was not going to be the economics, was not going to be the health, was going to be sin that separated them from a holy God. And that's exactly what John does, isn't it? Right? He, John, after he's born, basically at some point he goes out in the wilderness and he starts preparing for this. He starts learning his Bible. He starts learning about this promised one. And then at the right time, he comes out of the wilderness. He starts calling all the nations to repentance. He starts calling them to repentance that God is here, that the Messiah is here. He is coming and that we need to get right with him. And the way that we get right with him is by turning from our sin and we trust in him. Same message that we have today. And do you remember, church, when John first laid eyes on Jesus? Do you remember those words that came out of his mouth? They're special. Special words. And we can find this in John 1, 29. You don't have to turn now. I'm going to read it for us. But he's looking at Jesus. He's, he makes eye contact with Jesus. And he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When John first laid eyes on Jesus, he knew, it's time. This is the one whom my dad said I needed to prepare the way for. This is the one in whom I came, that I was born to serve. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why did he say that? Because who is Jesus? He's the one who was coming to go to a cross the one who is going to die like a sacrificial lamb, but to be the last sacrificial lamb 
to die for the atonement of sinners like you and I. Every single one of us who knew that we, on our own, we cannot be perfect. We cannot present our lives to God and say, we are holy, we deserve heaven, we have never sinned, we have never rebelled against you. None of us can do that, and we know that. So instead of just saying that we're going to trust in a God who has died for us in a casual, like, yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll turn to somebody else. We need to behold Jesus this season saying, this is the Lamb of God. And so when you look at those nativity scenes, we have around here at the church, maybe you have some in your home, right? And you see baby Jesus in the manger. Look at those hands. Look at those hands and, and remember that those hands grew into adulthood and those hands were pierced for your sins. That's what Zechariah is trying to impart into his son here. And that's what Zechariah is trying to impart into us this morning. Is that we have a Savior that came to redeem us from the most important thing that we need to be redeemed from, and that is the sins that separated us from him. It's a beautiful picture of redemption and fulfillment. And here's point number three. Why? Why is all this happening? Why is Zachariah even telling us all this? Well, he answers that. If you look down at your Bibles, look at verse 78. Because of what? Because of the tender mercy of God, of our God. Why is all this happening? Why is God sending somebody? Why do we know about this, this Savior that is coming? Why do we know that Jesus would, would grow and, and die in our place? Why do we celebrate that? Because of the tender mercy mercy of God. That when he looked on you, when he looked on me, his eyes were filled with mercy. His heart was filled with mercy. Right? Mercy is getting what, or not getting what you should have gotten. Right? When we, when we looked at hell a couple weeks ago, when we studied that topic on one, one Sunday, I think a lot of us got a, a sobriety punch in the face of what we actually deserved. And so when we think about the tender mercy of God, Jesus being born is a demonstration of that. Of him doing something that we do not deserve and withholding something that we do. The mercy of God. God showing his mercy like a sunrise piercing the darkness as it rises. Something that we don't deserve but we desperately want, huh? And we struggle with that. I think we really struggle with that. Because even though we, we talk about grace a lot, we talk about mercy a lot, there's something inside of us that still likes to think that we deserve it, right? That somehow we're, we, that can be just given to us by Jesus. There has to be something attached to it. We have to earn it in some capacity, right? Our hearts are bent towards legalism. Think of Santa's naughty or nice list. Right? We, we think that there has to be something. There has to be something that gets us on the nice list. It can't just be because of the mercy of the gift giver. It has to be something that we do. But church, let me, and I know you've probably heard this a thousand times, but your hearts are bent towards legalism every single day, so you need to hear it again. God came not because of what you do or what you would do, but because of the tender mercy of him. He went first. He loved you first. 
We respond to it. That's the gospel. That's why it's such good news. So every Christmas, let's remember that God has come like the sunrise piercing the darkness of the night. The darkness of the night. Which we all need, right? We tend to hate the darkness. I know I hated the darkness when I, I used to work for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I don't know if I've, I think I've told most of you guys this by now. And when I was, I was tracking bighorn sheep in some of the Nevada mountains, and I was sleeping up on the mountain by myself a lot of the time, I hated it. And you know why I hated it? The darkness. It felt like it overcame you at night. Like, even though I knew I was on flat ground, every time I moved, I felt like I was going to plunge off a cliff. When you're way out, and there's no moonlight, and there's complete darkness, I tell you, it does some crazy things to you. You start to hear things. You lose that sense of balance. You lose even that sense of identity a little bit. Of like, why in the world am I here? What in the world am I doing? We hate it. I hated the darkness. It has, and studies have shown this, prolonged exposure to darkness has major psychological and physiological effects on you. And we know this about ourselves, right? We even know this probably in our kids. I know my, my kids who are little, they hate the darkness. They absolutely hate it. They're fearful of it. So right now, we, we usually have night lights in their room. Right now, because it's Christmas time, we've got these little Christmas trees that light up at night in their room. And they want that. And they want that because they know, because they're made in the image of God, and they know that darkness is something more than just darkness. And so we tell them, you know why we're putting this light in your room? Not just so you would not be afraid of the dark, but also so that you would understand that Jesus came to bring light into a dark world. And this is pointing you to that, son. This is pointing that to you, daughter. And that's, what he, that's basically what Zechariah says, right? If you look down at verse 79. He says to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Church, the promise that Zechariah has been telling us throughout this, this, these short verses the promise of the one to come ends with the promise to bring peace. To bring peace. And, and what Mike and Liz read to us out of Isaiah is this one to come was called the Prince of Peace. And here, Zechariah is saying, the one who comes is going to guide you in the way of peace because he's the one who knows it. And so as we walk out of here today, church, I hope you understand that everything in which Zechariah has been telling us and communicating to us that no matter where you are at today, Jesus being born is more than we ever will realize, I think, on this side of eternity. But we can certainly spend our days thinking about it, hoping in it, looking forward to it. That God has come to visit his people, that he's come to redeem his people, he's come to give his people freedom, he has come to give us the ability to serve him, he has come to give us light in the darkness, he's come to forgive us of our sins, he's come to show us the way of peace. That's Zachariah's song. And so if you don't know Christ, or maybe you're not quite sure where you're at, one, I want to say that you're welcome here our Castlevard Bible Church, or if you know somebody who may be on the fence or is so far on the other side of the fence you don't think that they'll ever want to come here, you can invite them knowing that this is a safe place. And if that's you, 
I want to speak to you just for one quick moment. Everything in which we have read and been thinking through, none of it we deserve. None of it we think that we have because we're better than anybody else. Just God in his mercy has revealed to us that this is the one that we need. This is one who we need, not just in the Christmas season, but all of our lives. And so you can come to him. And I pray that God has been revealing that to you, that you're no different than us. That we're just a bunch of sinners saved by the grace of God. And you can step in with us in this pursuit of, is Jesus, if he is who he said he is, that's going to make a big difference. And we go, yeah, it does. That's why we're here. And we can help you kind of take those next steps if you're not quite sure. But ultimately what it is, it's just from turning from a life of trying to pursue your identity, your own glory, your own mission, your own purpose from anyone or anything outside of Jesus and turning from that sin and trusting in the one who came to redeem you from those sins. That's the gospel. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the Christ of Christmas. And to that end, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll respond in a couple ways. Well, Father, I am so thankful I'm thankful that we have all of these promises. That these promises are not just some shot in the dark. I hope it works. But they were promises that were said as if they were done because ultimately they became finished and complete in you. Hey God, what, what a joy it is to worship you and know those things. Thank you for revealing them to us. God, I pray that the rest of this Advent season, as we continue to look at more songs, we continue to look at who you are, Jesus, we continue to look at why looking at a baby being born has such significance for us. One baby being born has so much significance for us that we would be able to walk out of here just glorifying you and praising you along with all of your creation in the way that we were intended. And God, as the saints of old, we're anticipating, so we do anticipate your coming again. And may we do so joyfully and hopefully. In your mighty name we pray, amen.